Yehuda Gabber with uh, another Jewish History Soundbites podcast. And um, in light of the tragic uh, passing, um, just this past uh, Shabbos of a great man, Reb Nassim Kamenetsky. So I thought it would be appropriate to talk a little bit about him and who he was and his life. Um, the great, great uh, historian who added so much of his wealth of knowledge to what we know of the of the uh, world of Eastern Europe, especially the Lithuanian yeshiva world of Eastern Europe. And um, he was a great man, a very sweet and warm person also. And he himself became uh, a piece of history in his own, uh, in his own life, in a way. Uh, he was born when his father, Abyankov Kamenetsky, was still the Rav in Setevian, which was a small little shtetl, a small little town in Lithuania. And um, that's where he was born in 1930. And when he was a young boy of about seven years old, seven, eight years old, um, his parents moved to the United States where his father, which is a whole story in itself, why he ended up there and why he left, um, struggling to make ends meet and other reasons and other things that came into play at the time. And they moved first to Seattle and he grows up mainly in Toronto, where his father was a Rav. He actually told me on, on one of my, you know, I visited him a few times, unfortunately not enough. Um, I wish it was more. But um, in one of those visits, he told me that his father was a Rav in Lita, in Lithuania. He was a Rav in Toronto, a communal rabbi, and he would have remained a Rav um, his entire life had not Rav Shraga Feivel Mendelovich called him in and offered him a position in the yeshiva of Tayyar Vidas in New York and when he moved down. And the reason he brought that out was because I was asking him about the transition that his father made from being a communal rabbi, a rav, to being a Rosh Hashiva, which was, you know, there's a transition of leadership that took place at the time. There were signs of it even before the war, where the communal rabbonim, the rabbonim of the big cities, the big rabbis, were the leaders of the Jewish people, and it slowly transitioned to being the Rosh Yeshiva uh, the heads of the big yeshivas as being the main primary leaders of the Jewish people in the non-Hasidic world, obviously. So I asked him, I said, your father, you know, he made that transition himself. You know, he was a Rav, and following that he became a Rosh Hashiva. And he said, well, his father always was a Rav, and he paskin Shilas as a Rav in Halacha, and even afterwards, and he was offered a better position, other reasons, um, to become Rosh Hashiva by Rav Shagha Feivel, and that's what ultimately brought them to New York. Now, his, Rav Nassim's grandfather, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky's father-in-law, um, in other words, his mother's father, was the Mashgiach in the Slabatki Yeshiva, Rav Hirsch Heller. Um, so he came on his mother, from his mother's side, he came from the Yeshiva aristocracy, and um, that that uh, that Yichus not, didn't really remember his grandfather that much. His grandfather pretty much uh, moved to Eretz Yisrael before he was born, 
and died a few years later. And um, I don't think he ever knew him, but his mother definitely shared with him about who her father was, the Slabatka Mashgiach, or Ber Hirsch Heller. And he goes to Yeshiva Tervedas. He eventually goes to learn by Ruven Grzovsky in Beis Medrash Elyon in Muncie. And then he studied at Beis HaTalmud by Rebleib Malin, one of the earlier students of Beis HaTalmud, before it became a larger yeshiva. It was still a small place where several older Altamirs, students of Rabbi Rucham Levovitz, the Mashiach Rabbi Rucham, had started this yeshiva in East New York. And he is one of the earliest uh, students at that yeshiva. So he's a, 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 he learns there as well. He is a Rebbe and a Rav in different parts of New York during the 1950s and 60s, until he eventually moves to Eretz Yisrael. He had already married the daughter of Reb David Lifshitz, the Savalka Rav, and Rebison Shalamis, may she live and be well. Um, very special lady, very also warm and inviting lady, always takes, uh, invites us in, and we, you know, I've spoken to her and just spoke to her recently to ask uh, how how Reb Nussin was doing, and she um, also tells us stories of, of her father, of David Lifshitz. So you have that angle as well. David Lifshitz was the Suvalka Rav in Suvalk in Poland, and later a one of the Russian yeshiva at Yeshiva Serbeni Yitzchak But Reb Nussin and his wife, they moved to Eretz Yisrael. They leave everything behind. They moved to Eretz Yisrael in 1968, right after the Six-Day War, and together with Reb Mordechai Elephant, they build the Itri Yeshiva, which is a story in itself. The Itri Yeshiva, a very unique um, educational facility and um, Yeshiva that in its heyday had hundreds of Talmidim and Reb Nassim was there pretty much from the beginning. Reb Nassim had begun the work earlier, but Reb Nassim came when the Yeshiva really uh, got started. Reb Nassim got the property at that point. Uh, through his connection, connections with Moshe Dayan, who was the Minister of Defense, he was able to get a piece of property in East Jerusalem near the Beit Safafa neighborhood, right past Talpiot, and um, that's where he built the yeshiva, and eventually became um, a you know a flagship of several other educational institutions. And at its peak, and had some of the superstars of the Yerushalmi world who were abeim there, Shmuel Auerbach. Um, Reb Shleima Fisher, Reb Yassel Tseinvert, were all Rebbeim there with Reb Nassim Kamenetsky. And uh, like I said, hundreds of Talmidim were in the yeshiva. And eventually the yeshiva had some downturns, which is a story in itself. But in 1998, he's already getting old. He retires from active teaching. He leaves Itchri and retires. He pretty much spent the rest of his life researching. Researching the Litvish yeshiva world that his father had originated from, that he was born into and left at a very young age. And he, and he actually started devoting his time to researching, and shortly after his father's death, he wanted to write a book about his father. Um, some of the research that he produced was adapted into the original art scroll biography of Rebekah of Kamenetsky, which he himself, Reb Nussin himself, translated and adapted into Hebrew, but he, he had his eyes on something much bigger. Um, he devoted the rest of his life to research. He lived in Saratskin, and he would spend a large portion of his day researching. And his research in the pre-internet era 
Um, absolutely phenomenal. The amount of sources that he got a hold of and old Yiddish works and memorial books of different communities and out of print for him. And he had, of course, a, a phenomenal memory. He, he remembered every single time that he interviewed someone and he would always make sure to take notes or record what he had this knack for for doing his research in, in all aspects. I remember a friend of mine told me that his grandfather was an Altamir who from Shanghai who who lived in Montreal. And he once introduced himself, this friend of mine, his grandson, to Rimnasen Kamenetsky. And Rimnasen Kamenetsky says to Oh, this is your grandfather. Sixty-three years ago, I was in Montreal for Shabbos for a Simcha, and your grandfather spoke, it was this and this parsha, and this is the vart that he said, and he went ahead and repeated exactly what his grandfather said, right there on the spot. He had an absolutely phenomenal memory. And um, another elder Rav, who I spoke to in Yerushalayim, he's told me that when you spoke to Rav Nassim Kamenetsky, it was always a bit of a a lachatz. It was a bit of a, you know, a tense situation. Why? Because as soon as you'd start to tell him a story and he'd sense that you're about to present something of value that possibly and potentially could be add to his knowledge and research and story warehouse of, 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 of history, he would take out those days a tape recorder. Today we would use uh, obviously more modern versions of that. He would take out his little mini tape recorder that he always carried on him and he would press record, and there you go, now you can continue. And he said, oh my gosh, it's like, every time you speak to him, you have to be careful what you say, it's all being recorded, and that was his obsessiveness, he never wanted to lose it, and in one of the speeches he gave, he explained, he said, we live in the world of after the Holocaust, and that whole vanished world of Eastern European Jewish life that he was born into, that his parents represented, that his grandparents represented, is gone. And he wants to be able to give that over and retain as much as that, of that world that we have so that we can benefit from that knowledge and, and those stories of the personalities of those people. So, and uh, the truth is, when he finally um, put out his, his uh, magnum opus, uh, at least the first volume, the only one that actually came out of the making of a Gadol, and um, the, you see the, the wealth of sources and information in there, an absolute vast uh, um, types of sources, oral interviews, out-of-print books. He went to Minsk to interview an elderly aunt, his father's sister. His father was one of six siblings and the only one who had stayed religious. All his father's siblings were no longer religious, and one of them was still alive when he was preparing the research for this book, his aunt Devorah. And he goes out to Minsk to interview her, and the details that he relates, the exactness, and when he starts to describe Minsk and the streets and Slabatka and the places that his father was, he makes these places alive because his attention to detail, sometimes it's even an annoying attention to detail. And some people complained about the book that it was just too vast and too detailed and too tedious with the, with the exactness about everything. But that's what he was. He wanted everything to be related in the most exact way. And he'd start to describe you using the street names and I would think to myself when I read the book, it's as if he's expecting his readers to know what the streets are like and their names are. And he says, then you make a right and you end up on this street and it looks like this. And the houses 
were there like this, and the main shul, he would start to describe the main shul in Minsk and explain that it was called the cold shul because it was too big to heat in the winter, and people were paid to daven there and use it, and they would only use it several times a year for the entire community because it costs so much to heat up. And all these details of regular life that he makes these places alive, and that was his talent in the book throughout the 1,400 pages of anyone who had the patience to actually go through it. But it's a, absolutely an amazing testimony to someone who was able to amass so many sources and resources. Again, without the internet and search engines, he had this uh, attention to dates. He would look through, again, today on the internet, this takes a second. He would look on old calendars to see if the dates match, and he would disprove certain stories by establishing how the dates it don't work out that he would be able to have taken a train on those in those dates and gotten there, and he would be able to bring out the full uh, story of what he's trying to give over using um, using all the sources that he was able to put together. Now, he um, we you know I, I visited him like I said a, a few times. He was always very gracious, very inviting. Um, it was always you know it was warm and inviting and let us in and. and May she live and be well. The Rebetzin Shalamis also was always happy that we would come. And sometimes I came alone, sometimes with others, and and uh, to speak to him. And and we would you say, so what do you want? What, what what's, what's the questions this time? So if I would ask a question that was something in the book, so he expected that you read the book. Why? Because the first thing I said is, of course, I read the book. So he said, okay, if you read the book, then why are you asking this question? I wrote this in the book. And one time he actually took the book off the shelf, turned to the page where he wrote it, and reads it out. So he starts reading it. It was like bedtime stories with Reb Nassim. It was the sweetest and cutest thing ever. And the reason was is that he didn't feel like any need to repeat himself and hash over the same thing. If it was already written, if it was already published, go ahead and read it yourself. If you need me to read it to you, I could do that too. So afterwards, I tried to focus on non-book related topics and his knowledge was vast. He knew about so many other things as well. And he, um, he, um, he, told me, he told me about the future volumes that he had planned on writing, but because of the whole incident with the first book and all the misunderstandings surrounding that, he was unable to uh, continue. And because of what was lost over there, so I would focus a lot of my questions to him about what was potentially going to be in the second, third, and fourth volumes. There was supposed to be four volumes. Um, and, uh, and we would ask him about, you know, r- rabbinical life in America. And he had a lot to say about his father's membership in the Agudas Harabonim, the, the old, um, which at the time of his father in the 1940s and 50s was a very prestigious organization. It was a union of all the elderly and European rabbis in America, which at that time had a lot of prestige and power in American rabbinical life. And uh, of course, the Rebetzin had a lot to add um, because her father, Abdavid Lifshitz, was a prominent member of the Agudas Rabbanim as well. And um, he had what to say about those topics too. Um, he uh, was, the, was the subject of a controversy in regards to his book, The Making of a Gadol, um, which is definitely a subject I do not want to get into, and it would veer off the topic. But there was one one aspect of it that really struck me, that um, first of all, the way he took it, the way he took it like an aristocrat, like a prince, and, um, you know, uh, 
quietly and with sneers, with with uh, with uh, with uh, very very properly and not not out there to you know didn't try to to uh, make too much of a big deal out of it after it happened and he kind of accepted um, what was done to him um, even though he definitely was not happy about it but I, I remember the original the first time that um, in Yerushalayim it's called Pashkevilin there's signs that went up against his book the making of a gadol the original one the first one that went up in the streets of Yerushalayim it said it was in Hebrew and it said that not since the days of Yalag of Yehudaleib Gordon when he would write his articles in Hamelitz with his Haskalah oriented articles with their um, dismissiveness of rabbinical leaders and their zilzal, their disgrace, uh, his disgrace, the way Yalag would write against the rabbinical leaders of his day. Not since then have we seen such a zilzal in great Gedaile Yisrael, great rabbinical leaders. That was what the claim was against him. Of course, it uh, you know it's a, a, definitely not like Yalag. That's definitely an exaggeration. And of course, it's a debatable topic, which, like I said, I don't want to get into. Um, and um, and but I what struck me was how many people today know about Yalag, know about Yehuda Leib Gordon, the famous Maskil, originally from Tells and later moved to Saint Petersburg, who was a great writer and poet and wrote very often for Hamelitz. How many people today know about his style of writing? Well, it just so happens to be that among the hundreds of topics covered in Making of a Gadol, he does make mention of Yalag and the way he would write for Hamelitz and his influence in Haskalah circles. And I was thinking this guy writing against him probably got his information from there. So even his detractors, even the ones who, who went against him, they also had to get from him. They also were enriched in their knowledge from Reb Kamenetsky with his vast knowledge, with his storytelling ability, and with his making of history um, through his books, through his writings. Of course, the main way I know him, like many, is through his book, and the stories, the history that it provides is invaluable for an understanding. Slabotka, the altar of Slabotka, the Musser movement, his father, Rebecca Kamenetsky, Jewish life in Lithuania at the time. And, um, and the little bit that I was privileged to know him personally, of course, enriched, um, enriched it as well. He was a very warm, very special person, a great Talmud Chochem as well. And he will be greatly missed. And, um, uh, um, and, uh, and his memory should be a blessing. So this was Yehuda Geber um, with another Jewish History Soundbites podcast. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Don't miss a, an episode of our podcast. You can email me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, or to discuss tours and trips to Eastern Europe and other places where we could learn and see the places where Mnusid Kamenetsky and other people talk about and teach us about. You can also follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and we hope you enjoy.